0: fantastic Friday to you on this 7th of February, 2020. Where in the Word are you today? Uh, I am in Proverbs chapter 1, uh, verses 29 to 31. This This is the counsel of the Lord here. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, because they would have none of my counsel and despised all my efforts to discipline them, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their own way. And have their fill of their own wicked schemes. So if that sounds a lot to you like uh, Romans one, where Paul reminds us that, you know, frankly, God will let you have your head. He will like like a horse, like an unruly horse. Um, God's not going to fight you um, today for leadership in your life. God will give you your head. He'll let you go your own way. But then you're going to eat the fruit uh, of of that. So the Lord is speaking here in Proverbs chapter one. Uh, and the, it's a theme that is repeated throughout the Bible. God is and God has spoken, but people often prefer their own way of thinking to the revelation of God and his way. And the Bible is full of examples of those who chose to not fear the Lord, um, ignored the counsel of God, despised God's efforts to help them. And then they suffered the consequences of their own actions or inaction. Uh, and then often they they blamed God. Uh, so, so there you go. Um, This is, there's nothing new under the sun in terms of this pattern. It is, uh, again, what Paul, the apostle Paul is writing about in Romans chapter one. He's talking there about people having exchanged the truth about God for lies and choosing to go their own way instead of following in the way of the Lord. Romans 124 says, therefore, God gave them over to the desires of their own hearts to impurity for the dishonoring of their bodies with one another. And they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is forever worthy of praise. So, do you do that? Do I do that? Do we do that? Do you know that God is? And do you basically know what God has said? I mean, even if you haven't been in the Word of God this morning, have you been in the Word of God enough to know what God has said about most things? Um, This could be a conversation about life or habits or sexual relations or anger or fear or raising kids or tithing or a thousand other things where God has offered us his counsel and we have instead gone our own way. Proverbs 131 lets us know that God is not going to make us, force us to follow his lead. God's not going to force anyone to sort of, you know, live the father knows best way of life. So we have to then know that we're going to eat the fruit that we sow. We're going to eat the fruit that grows up out of the seeds we plant. Um, We are going to eat a harvest of unrighteousness. We're going to sleep in the bed of our own making. And instead of joyful, humble submission to the counsel of God, we're going to find ourselves one day, you know, utterly humiliated in the midst of consequences that we cannot bear. So don't go there. Stop right now and choose the fear of the Lord this day. Stop right now. Receive the wise counsel that God has offered us through the inspiration of his Holy Spirit in the Word of Scripture in the Old and New Testaments, be filled this day not, not, with what is described in Scripture as the deceitful scheming against God. Um, the devil makes that look so enticing. But instead, let's be filled today with the holy plans of the Lord our God. Let us sow seeds of peace that together we might cultivate a harvest of righteousness in this generation, or at least in the one that is yet to come. Next up, Matthew Hawkins will be here. He and I are going to talk about yesterday's um, national prayer breakfast. We're also going to talk about Mitt Romney's speech and what it means to take a stand of moral courage. We'll be right back. Joining me now, Matthew Hawkins, uh, I would describe him as a public theologian, working on his Ph.D., former policy director for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Church, Southern Baptist Convention, um, and uh, and joins us here on a regular basis, and we appreciate your input. Matt, welcome back.
2: Good morning, Carmen. Happy to be with you. Uh, the shorter, shorter verb is nerd uh, for all, that, all those credentials. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, but we like nerds around here, so you're all good. You're in good company, man. Um, Okay, so let's start with Mitt Romney. He is uh, a senator. He was a former candidate for the the office of president of the United States. He's a person who's fairly well known, I would say, um, to most people in the country because of that. Uh, And he took a solitary stand, uh, uh, really, all on his own, um, as a Republican, to vote against the president or to vote in favor of impeachment which would have impeached the president of the United States. Um, Just talk about that moment a couple of days ago, and then you and I are gonna walk through some of the things that he said.
2: Yeah, um, what what a big moment. Um, uh, Lots of big moments this week uh, in American politics. And one of those, as as you mentioned, is Romney making his uh, speech on the floor of the Senate um, related to his decision as the only member of the Republican Party who uh, voted in favor of uh, removing the president uh, from office uh, following impeachment. Um, and uh, obviously uh, the president was acquitted. We saw the headline in USA Today, big letters held up by the president, uh, it was acquitted, he was acquitted. and. Um, Uh, But Romney took a different tact from the rest of his Republican colleagues Um, and uh, it's to his credit uh, that he did so and uh, he waxed uh, fairly eloquently about uh, um, his – this moment being one of the hardest decision uh, of his – one of the hardest decisions of his life Um, and he kind of saw it coming. He – I think it's reported that he – fall when uh democrats were gonna um, file for impeachment and uh, he understood that he was gonna have to uh Take a stand um not only uh, morally uh, but he also uh sp- specifically uh rejected the uh, a number the three primary reasons that uh trump's defense team gave uh for reasons why this shouldn't uh go forward and and uh, remove remove the president um but he he talked about how his faith inspires him and uh, mm-hmm. he wanted to be a le- uh you know a leader for his family um And uh, now, you know, it's not lost on us that uh, he did win his election as senator from Utah by significantly more margins than Trump. Um, And so there is a a little bit of a political – he does have a little more political um, cushion than a lot of people in his – perhaps his colleagues in the Senate. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, it was an encouraging moment to see even if you disagreed – uh, you know, with his, his action, or if you, uh, you know, if you support president Trump through all this, um, you know, for it, it, it takes a, a it's a big deal, uh, to go against your entire caucus. Um, especially in the Senate, um, the, Mar- it's a, it's a small club and, uh, I mean, he's going to, he's going to be feeling a cold shoulder for quite some time because of this.
0: Well, which is one of the points that I think that he makes. So let me just read um, one portion of his, the speech he delivered. As a senator juror, I swore an oath before God to exercise impartial justice. I'm profoundly religious. Um, my faith is at the heart of who I am. Now, at this point, what you can't see in this transcript, but you do see if you watch the video, um, I mean, yeah. he it, he is genuinely choked up. Um, I, I take an oath before God uh, as enormously consequential, and I know from the outset that being tasked with judging the president the leader of my own party would be the most difficult decision i have ever faced i was not wrong and and then he you know he talked about recognizing yep. that although his vote was not going to change anything he was going to follow his conscience because failing to do so um would change him and it would change the way he saw himself right. it would change his ability to stand um before god and and so i wanted you know wanted to lift those things up because we talk about an act of conscience, and we talked about being and we talked yeah. about being led privately and publicly as a matter of conscience. What when I say that to you, having been in Washington D.C., do you see a lot of acts of conscience like this um, in the political world today?
2: Yeah, uh, it's certainly not many that are visible, and uh, certainly are um, unless it's a high drama political moment already. Uh, the, I think our press, our national press and media don't, uh, give much attention uh, to those moments of conscience, right? Um, this is, uh, Romney's in the spotlight because, uh, he went against the president of the United States and against his only party in a, really a highly dramatic moment in American politics. Um, uh, you don't, you don't see it often. Uh, Washington, um, is, uh, uh you know a city that is it everybody's making calculations everybody has an agenda uh and most decisions uh, i would say um are are calculated along those lines, strategic and political lines it's not to say um there aren't uh great people in washington uh quietly going about their, their business working in uh you know deploying their conscience on these kinds of decisions though not uh not necessarily as dramatic uh, one of the things that did strike me when i was in washington was how many faithful believers that I met in, in all corners of the federal government who, in their space and their time and their responsibilities, were trying to you know uh, work conscientiously and apply uh, their faith um, in their own sphere, uh, just like Romney, albeit the uh, um, you know the ramifications for that might be uh, might not be as dramatic and, and might not ever be seen, uh, but you can think of uh, you know people um, you know, certain departments, federal departments like uh, Health and Human Services, which are, are currently directed by a lot of folks that are uh, fans of freedom of conscience like us and also um, also uh, generally pro-life and predisposed to be pro-life. Uh, in a different administration than the Obama administration, that's, you know, generally run by uh, people who are pro-choice um, and have a very different worldview on um, on, on abortion and uh, even some of the freedom of conscience things. And mm-hmm. when the leadership changes, not all federal staff change over, right? Entire entire departments do not flip over for political reasons. Uh, and it's actually illegal to fire people for that reason. And so you do have, you know, people call them lifers, people call them careers, uh, but they're people who are serving in federal government. Um, and uh, I I saw a lot of glimpses of, of positive, um, positive hope uh, when I was there.
0: Talking with Matt Hawkins, uh, you can find him at MatthewTHawkins.com or on Twitter at MTHawk. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment. We're going to pivot to a discussion of yesterday morning's National Prayer Breakfast. We'll be right back. Oh. Returning to my conversation with Matthew Hawkins, you can find him online at MatthewTHawkins.com, or you can follow him on Twitter at MTHawk. All right, Matt, let's pivot to the National Prayer Breakfast. Um, have you ever attended? I have mm-hmm. not. Um, and then what, wh- who's there, and really what is it supposed to be about
2: yeah, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great questions. I have not uh, ever been to the National Prayer Breakfast. Um, it's a, you know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty tightly uh, invite-oriented kind of thing. Um, uh, that's why extent- I
0: wanted to point this out. My because- former boss,
2: Richard. L- Right. Yeah. Uh, it, it issues, uh, invitations tend to be, uh, extended by members of Congress to people in their own district or in their own States. Um, so if you're looking for a ticket to the national prayer breakfast, uh, you gotta go, you, that's, that's the best channel. Um, even those, even those of us who worked in, uh, Worked in D.C. and and worked in, you know, for religious organizations. Uh, it was, it's not, a, it's not an automatic in for those purposes. Now you could like, people could volunteer, you could, you could be in Washington, uh, if you're a young person and, uh, you know, go volunteer for the breakfast and, and get in that way. Um. It is hosted by, uh, or inspired by, uh, a group called. Now, I think they call themselves now the Fellowship, uh, which is um, a, a organization that that's um, best described as. Hmm, they they like to uh, recruit uh, people who believe in Jesus. Um, and cultivate networking, um, among, uh, people who are in leadership, uh, particularly political leadership. Um, now people have different opinions about this group. Uh, they tend to be quiet, uh, kind of quiet. Um, but, uh, there's a Netflix documentary that gives a little bit of insight, but I, I'm going to be cautious about recommending it. Um, uh, because there's a little, there's a lot of kind of overtones of conspiracy theory that I don't buy into at all, but it's called uh, the family on Netflix. I, uh, on my podcast crossing phase, we did a deep dive on kind of evaluating that, uh, group and in that program, um, but they do these kind of prayer breakfasts uh, all over the all over the world really. Um this is probably the most prominent one. Uh and it's, you know, intended to use prayer and uh unity as uh, or prayer and breakfast as a, a point of nonpartisan unity, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, to set aside the politics of the day and and come together and talk about uh, things that are greater than us. Um, now, some people uh, love the prayer breakfast. Uh, some people have uh, concerns about separation of church and state issues within the prayer breakfast. Uh, some people are concerned about the hobnobbing and the network. That goes uh, along with the prayer breakfast. Uh, that's all. That's all part of, uh, of basically any kind of uh, gathering in Washington. Uh, so that's the basic gist of it. Um, it's traditionally attended by the president and uh, the. Uh, it's typically chaired by a member of Congress, and uh, so that's the basic the basic overview.
0: Okay, so I think that we want to say to uh, to the audience listening, we think that every single day you and I and everybody else should have a prayer breakfast like we Mm -hmm. should be doing this. And so um, we talked recently with Asherita Chuchu about her um, Bible and breakfast book, her Bible and breakfast sort of like daily, uh, daily opportunity to not only include the Bible in your breakfast, but intentional prayer. Some of that is for the nation. So everybody can actually do this every single day. What makes this national prayer breakfast, I think, different is the optics of the the particular yeah. week in which we find ourselves. And so, right. you know, Tuesday, we have the optics of uh, of the president of the United States delivering the State of the Union address and over his left shoulder, yeah. uh, the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. And at the end of the speech, she tears tears it up very, very publicly. And then we have yeah. almost the reverse optics at the— national prayer breakfast where we have the president of the united states seated to the left and nancy pelosi at the podium um and she is praying and yeah. it's it i will tell you that if for a person for people who recognize the challenge of being even in the physical presence of a person for whom you have contempt which i think it's fair to say those two individuals hold yes. hold one another in yeah. pretty in, in contempt um it that the optics of it are challenging i would say for christians there's the possibility of at least speaking the truth that yeah. um we are in we are supposed to not just be praying for our enemies but doing them actual good loving them yeah. which was yeah. arthur yeah, brooks point I, I, in his in his speech
2: yeah yeah. And the, the Arthur Brooks point, just uh, I think under uh, Arthur Brooks, speech and his appearance there, uh, I think, underscores some of the tension that we're feeling this week. And it is pretty remarkable. Uh, you have State of the Union address. You have uh, the president uh, acquitted of, of impeachment and then the prayer breakfast, all within the span of like 72 hours. I mean, it's really a stunning uh, week uh, if you're wa- if you're watching American politics. And uh, I agree the tension In there. Iowa. It, it, Yeah. And Iowa. Oh, my goodness. I forgot about Iowa. How did I do that? Um, And so, uh, you know, I think we ought, you know, frankly, uh, between Brooks's message and, uh, you know, the optics of Trump and Pelosi, this is part of how America gets back to sane politics. Uh, We ought to expect this kind of gathering from our politics bipartisan, talking about other things, however they might use it uh, in their rhetoric, we ought to expect more from our politicians. And I think this moment uh, between uh, Brooks's speech um, and, uh, and, and Romney's, uh, speech and vote. Uh, and, and I think this is, there's a glimpse, there's a little bit of political hope here. I know it's, it's temporal hope. Um, but there's a glimpse that, uh, our, our, you know, our sense of, uh, discourse and tact and, um, respectability and, uh, you know, cordialness and the things that we, I grew up being taught were important for, uh, not only private, but public life, uh, could be how we start to get some of this back. Um, Brooks is uh, is pretty unfettered. He's president of American Enterprise Institute. But if you look at, you know, hear any of his speeches recently, uh, it's really about uh, bridging, you know, fighting against this polarization stuff that we see all over um, and, be, you know, really, really re- not not just returning, but being a better nation uh, within the context of our public uh, discourse, both locally and nationally. Uh, so I think between uh, between Romney's speech and Brooks's speech and uh, the fact that uh, Pelosi and Trump both did at least show up for the prayer, for the prayer breakfast. Uh, I think that's a that's a positive thing for American politics.
0: Couldn't agree more. All right, Matt, we got to probably leave it right there. Um, you and I both found interesting a uh, an article about religious liberty being for everyone, not just for social conservatives. Yep. So maybe we'll sure. just direct people there at thedispatch.com. Um, remind us again the name of your podcast.
2: Crossing phase available wherever you listen in podcasts.
0: Yeah, crossing, crossing fades. fades. With an S
2: at the end. That's right. Exactly right.
0: All right. Hey, Matt. Thanks so much. You guys can find him at MatthewTHawkins.com. We'll be right back. All right. Have you ever like been reading the Bible and wondered to yourself, "I wonder what that would have been like." I wonder I wonder what it would have been like to have been a woman in that day and age, in that context, um, what kind of education would I have had? What kind of family environment would I have been raised within? What kind of opportunities would I have had to have heard Jesus in person? Um, What kind of opportunities would I have had to hear the Apostle Paul in places where he taught? Would women have been allowed in those spaces and places? Um, Certainly when Paul is teaching in a home— Um, The answer is yes. When he is teaching in environments where, you know, sort of only the cultural elites are allowed, uh, the answer would be no. I thought it would be interesting to examine that conversation. And Professor Westmont uh, College, Professor Holly Beers has a new book out entitled A Week in the Life of a Greco-Roman Woman. And this is a woman who personally encounters the Apostle Paul and... Her life is radically changed in more ways than just religious. So a week in the life of a Greco-Roman woman up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
1: Respect, it's
2: one of the most vital stones placed in the foundation of your home. And without respect, no relationship will be able to withstand the storms life will surely bring. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Think about your home right now. Is there a healthy sense of respect and esteem between family members? Well, consider this. When it comes to showing respect for others, your team takes her cues from you. So when you've had a particularly bad day at work or you're frustrated with the kids at home, don't take it out on your spouse. Find other ways to vent that don't include wife bashing or husband bashing. When you love and respect your partner in marriage, you're teaching your children to do the same.
1: Want more help from
2: Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. That's parentingtodaysteens.org.
0: back. I'm privileged to be joined today by Holly Beers. Holly uh, has a PhD from the London School of Theology. She is an associate professor of religious studies at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. Uh, she is the author of The Followers of Jesus as the Servant, Luke's Model from Isaiah for the Disciples in Acts, and, or Luke and Acts. But we're talking today about her newest book, A Week in the Life of a Greco-Roman Woman. Holly, welcome to Mornings with Carmen.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here.
0: So this could this could potentially sound a little nerdy, like you and I are going to talk about um, the life of a woman 2000 years ago, you know, under a government that is not the kind we live under today um, and in life circumstances that we do not share. Tell us why you wrote this book, because I think that will be the hook for our listeners in terms of why they will be captivated by what life was like for women um, in the Roman Empire in the first century?
1: Hmm. I wrote this book because I wanted to help people understand the world of the New Testament. I love the Bible. I teach New Testament for my job. And so many of my students and even people in my family, people like my mom, they really want to understand the New Testament better. They want to make sense of those passages that seem confusing, like they're not obvious. And I, this book was one way for me to try to communicate in a creative way, in a way that engaged people, what life would have been like for people in the world of Jesus and Paul.
0: And instead of taking, you know, what we might uh, think of as a, a history book perspective, instead ah. you tell us a story. I love that. I love that. Why, why tell us a story to draw us into the history?
1: So oh, honestly, I think humans are narrative creatures. I think that we learn through stories. I think we remember things better through story. So this seemed like the perfect medium for me. I mean, when I first got approached with the idea for this book, I thought, oh, that is exactly the kind of book that I could write if, if I can do a good job. But it's the kind of book that I could write that I actually believe will help people learn beyond the end of the page. They'll remember it the day after or the week after because it'll stick with them.
0: OK, so and I love the approach that we're um, that we're looking at, uh, you know, at the span of a week. Mm-hmm. One of the things that will would, would immediately like capture people's attention and sort of we would be mindful of is that, right, they're not counting years the way we're counting years at this point in history. And they're certainly not counting days the way we count days. So what is Wednesday in the life of a Greco-Roman woman, uh, you know, in this first
1: century context? Um. Can you tell me what what exactly you mean by the question? Well, I'm like, sorry. what
0: is Wednesday? So, well, I'm going to, I'll just read it. Day one, oh. Wednesday, day of Mercury, Hermes. Oh,
1: I see what you're
0: asking. Okay.
1: Yes, sorry. Their days. It wasn't
0: a trick question, right? It's like, they didn't even think about the days of the week in quite the same way we do.
1: Oh, definitely not. No, their days were dedicated to gods or goddesses, either in the Greek pantheon or the Latin Roman pantheon. And... And some, at least some of the daily activities for some people would have been structured around the honoring of that god or goddess. But, yeah, some of our modern names for days actually point back to some of those ancient trends, but most people today aren't aware of that. And so introduce
0: people to the main character of the story and tell us a little bit about her.
1: Okay. Her name is Anthea, and, I mean, I created her. She's fictive. But I chose her name because there's a pretty famous novel that was written by an Ephesian, by someone in Ephesus in the first century. And in that novel, the main female character is Anthea. So I thought, how perfect is this? I can use a name that we know some women in Ephesus in the first century would have been named. And she is married with one child and another baby on the way. And she's 18 in the book, which probably sounds young to us, but that would have been very typical in the ancient world. Women were usually married just after puberty, so ages 12 to 14, sometime in there, and it would have been very common for someone who's 18 or so to have a child or two even or more. Um, I wanted my main character to be a sort of every woman in the sense that she would have lived the life that most women in the ancient world would have lived. In other words, I didn't want her to be elite. I didn't want her to be wealthy because almost no one was wealthy. It was just a tiny, tiny minority. Most people had to work really hard every day just to get something to eat that day. And I wanted her to be in that kind of group, in that kind of class. And that's how she spends her week, is trying to to survive. And then, of course, she encounters some people that we also meet in the New Testament. But I wanted her life to be typical in that way, where most women, maybe not not all women, but most women would have lived a life something like that in the first century,
0: so I feel like this is a um this is a book that I read in conversation with the book of Acts, and I read it in conversation with some of paul's letters, um, or that's what it feels like to me. Is that what you have in mind?
1: Oh, definitely. I used Acts eighteen to twenty as my sort of framework for what at least some of the things that would happen throughout her week, but then also I used pieces of Ephesians. And some some passages from First Corinthians, because Paul seems to say at the end of First Corinthians that he's writing from Ephesus. So he would have been in Ephesus at that time and living out um, a, a sort of Jesus lifestyle with people practicing it there. And I think he's writing from that experience when he writes to the Corinthians, he's saying, basically, this is what we're doing here. And this is working really well. You guys do that there. So I wanted, I wanted people who have read the Bible and are familiar to hear some of these connections to New Testament texts, but I wanted people who don't know the Bible very well, not to feel like they're missing a lot. So I didn't make all the connections um, that obvious because I don't want people to say to themselves, oh, there's something else she's talking about in the story, which probably fits in the New Testament somewhere, but I don't know where it is.
0: Right. No, I definitely felt I felt like as a person who is familiar with the New Testament, I could see the threads, I could see the echoes, I could see the way that you were, um, you know, weaving the fabric together but um, certainly not in a way that would be uh, obvious or off-putting to a person who was not familiar with the stories of the New Testament. So um, really, it's it's beautifully written. I'm talking with Holly Beers. We're talking about her new book, A Week in the Life of a Greco-Roman Woman. When we come back, we're going to make some parallels um, just in terms of the kinds of things that the main character of this book is, uh, is experiencing in her life that are things that we experience in our lives as well. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Tink, tink. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Continuing my conversation with Holly Beers, we're talking about her new book. It's a novel, A Week in the Life of a Greco-Roman Woman. Um Holly, this this woman has experiences that I have. Like, right? They're just very It's the same rhythm of life. It's yeah. just that she has access to so much less than I have access to. That's one of the things that, um, you know, became I became very aware of. Like, it's not as hard for me to get a meal together for my family. And yet every day I have to get a meal together for my family. It's not as hard for me to get my kids where they need to be um, right. or, you know, or to be sure that, you know, my husband has what he needs. The same responsibilities exist. It's just the context is so different.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree. I wanted her experience to feel like the experience that a lot of women have even today as you said you know if if you're putting a meal together even just for yourself or for you and your cat or maybe you are married and have kids or maybe you have roommates and at the end of a day you need to figure out how people are going to eat i wanted that to resonate with people and and help them help them connect with my character There's so much about life that is consistent across generations and across centuries, even in cultures. And I'm hoping that people will pick up on those threads.
0: So she's, um, you know, she's surveying at one point, she's, you know, sort of uh, recognizing that she's got a friend who died during childbirth or, well, died while pregnant. And then the the child Mm -hmm. was also stillborn. Um, She has experiences uh, just that are very, very basic, just in terms of sanitation and cleanliness and Mm -hmm. expectations that exist in the culture related to being a married woman. Why don't you Mm -hmm. just just, um, share with folks some of that picture of her life?
1: So she is pregnant in my story. And I mean, for any woman who has been pregnant and carried a baby, I'm hoping that that will really connect because I basically wrote that out of my own experience, her pregnancy experiences. I have given birth to three children And I did not have an easy labor and delivery with my first. And so I have very vivid memories of the experience of being pregnant and then trying to get that baby out and the worry and how uncomfortable you can be. At least I was. And I mean, I was hot all the time when I was pregnant. And so I wrote that into her story because that felt like something that could be true for more than just me. So those kinds of experiences, I hope they connect. Um, her, she's married and she's pleased in her own cultural way with her marriage because it was a good match and her father helped set it up, which would have been very typical in the ancient world, but she doesn't expect a lot from her marriage in terms of, of emotional kinds of connections. And, and that from what we know was pretty typical too. I mean, the, the husband's job was to make sure that his wife as, as far as he was able had the resources she needed. So she had something to wear. And my character only has one tunic, one outfit, which would have been typical for a lot of people in the ancient world. So the husband's job is to make sure his wife has something to wear and that ideally she has resources to work with in terms of food. But beyond that, it's not like husbands and wives were expected to be close, you know, to be good friends. He isn't expected to take care of her in romantic ways. We we do know from the ancient world that some couples did love each other in ways that people like us would understand where there was a deeper connection, but that doesn't seem to be very common. So things like physical abuse were very common between men and women, um, with men being the perpetrators. And that was just socially accepted because men were the dominant ones and everybody knew that. So... My, my character is very careful in her life. She tries to be as strategic as she can not to anger her husband. And then she also relies pretty heavily on her girlfriends, which I wrote into the story because it seems like from, from what we know about the ancient world, like those kinds of feminine bonds would have been really important for women. That's where they would have gotten their emotional support and their security in those kinds of ways. And I think a lot of women today can relate to that. Even if we have very good marriages and our husbands are taking care of us in really cool ways, I think the female support system is still really a powerful thing for a lot of women today.
0: So Holly, um, as we've, we've got a couple of minutes left, and I want to give you time to, um, to really share about the decision that is set before this woman. So when we're, when we're thinking about the, the question that she faces, um, she really would risk everything if she were going to decide to follow Jesus.
1: Oh, yes. I mean, it would, in the ancient world, following Jesus is such a risk for most people. First of all, it is, it's confusing. Jesus is a confusing person. Why would anyone want to follow Jesus and devote their lives to Jesus? I mean, he got crucified by the Romans and the Romans crucified people that they considered basically to be terrorists. They crucified people like runaway slaves. So Jesus gets, gets treated as a category of person that basically isn't someone who you'd want to follow. I mean, it's, it's very surprising, but when she starts hearing Paul, because she gets to meet Paul and I, I tried to communicate some of the passion and, and, um, commitment to Jesus and commitment to community that I see in the new Testament for Paul. I tried to communicate that in the book, but she gets to hear Paul talk about Jesus and Paul's so moved by it and feels like this Jesus guy really is the one who is changing the world. And she's compelled by that, not just because of the message, but because of the way that she sees Paul treat people. And when she visits the, the, the gathering of Jesus followers, which I called the way, because in the book of Acts, that's what the followers of Jesus call themselves. They call themselves followers of the way, which probably that language probably comes from Isaiah in the Old Testament. And when she visits that gathering and she sees the way that people treat each other across different social classes and the way that men and women are interacting and the way that slaves get included in the group, I mean, she's so compelled by that because she sees this vision for what life could look like and just the way that people take care of each other and love each other well. But in, in a world like hers, she is culturally supposed to follow whatever gods her husband follows. So for her to make a break with that Could mean, well, it could mean a lot of things. I mean, if her husband finds out and he doesn't approve, her life could be one of abuse, basically. He can do to her almost whatever he wants. It could mean the fact that she would lose relationships. So if other people in her social circles find out that she's joined this this community who follows this Jesus guy who got crucified by the Romans, I mean, she could be cut off from the kind of social connection which is her entire life. And then her larger fear, of course, in the book is that if too many people start following this Jesus instead of the goddess who's their their local really important goddess, the goddess, her name is Artemis. And we know a lot about her actually in the ancient world. She was the patron goddess of the city of Ephesus. And basically, her power is connected to the city's power. And if people honor her, it probably means the city of Ephesus will be honored. So Artemis and the city are linked and are, and my main character Anthea is worried that if too many people start following Jesus and Artemis their local goddess isn't treated very well that Artemis will get angry and that things bad things will happen basically to people in the city. And in the ancient world things like, you know, droughts or or plagues because of course they didn't have a lot of medical care, those kinds of things were often seen as the gods getting back at them. That was retribution from a God or goddess who is angry. So there are so many factors in play here that make it a high risk decision for her to follow Jesus, but she's so compelled by what she sees that she still considers it. And I I wanted to communicate that well, because that's what we think people in the ancient world would have had to, to own up to if they were considering following Jesus. There were all these factors that they would have had to consider.
0: One of the things I appreciate, Holly, um, is that those are the same considerations that men and women have today in Mm -hmm. cultures that are not Western. Like, those are the same considerations that people have if they are living in the context of a culture where Christianity is not the dominant religion. Um, And so I just felt like for an evangelical Christian, this book is also a wonderful window into the realities that many people are living in today around the world, Um, who are living outside of, uh, you know, of the Western worldview. So the book is A Week in the Life of a Greco-Roman World. The uh, the author is Holly Beers. Um, Holly, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing this with us on Mornings with Carmen.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. We'll be right back.
0: All right, let me just start by saying you want one of those. Um, Mine arrived yesterday. My Tony Evans uh, study Bible arrived yesterday. Um, I immediately opened it up um, and was absolutely delighted, delighted by what I discovered there. Um, And so, if you're looking for, um, maybe you are a person who's been in the Word a lot and you're just looking for a new companion for the journey. Um, not only this year, but in the years to come, because let me just tell you, this this study Bible is a—it's a feast. Um, go ahead and log on to MyFaithRadio.com and uh, and enter to to receive uh, the copy that we're giving away this week of the Tony Evans Study Bible. Um, and then if, if you don't get one this week, you know, log back on and, and try again next week. Like, it's—I don't often say that, but let me just tell you, this came, and it is a— um, it's, it's, it's a gift. It's, a, it's just a delight. Um, okay, so lots going on today in the world. The coronavirus is certainly um, at the top of maybe my personal prayer list and things about which um, I am personally concerned. I bet you have a list of things as well. Um, and let me just encourage you, uh, it could be that you are experiencing a snow day apparently happening across the country today. Um, also people with power outages in, uh, on the West Coast, and so their schools are closed as well. Lots of things going on across the country. Um, let's just be careful, not just because of the weather, don't just be careful out there on the roads, be careful with people today. We can do better than we've been doing in terms of our love and concern for our neighbors. We can do better than we have been doing in terms of our public discourse. We can do better than the way we have been uh, operating in relationship to people with whom we disagree, or whose viewpoints are different than our own. And so let's just do better today, all right? Let's be careful not just uh, with the snow and ice uh, and rain and slick roads. Let's be careful with one another. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. we got a whole other hour up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app.